Hey there, podcast listeners. I have exciting news. We're launching a brand new podcast in addition to Super Soul Conversations. It's called Oprah's Masterclass. The Masterclass podcast allows you to hear the greatest life lessons from some of the most respected and renowned actors, musicians, public figures, and athletes in their own words. Listen as Jay-Z, Justin Timberlake, Ellen DeGeneres, Shaquille O'Neal, Reba McIntyre, Dwayne Johnson, and Jane Fonda, just to name a few, share what they've learned about life and their own insights into their personal stories and challenges. I believe that there's something to be learned from every experience, and everyone can use their life as a class. Oprah's Masterclass podcast is available now on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe now and listen free. Go to applepodcast.com slash Oprah's Masterclass. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Welcome to part two of our conversation. When you're a white Southern boy, young boy growing up, and people in school are calling you a nigger lover and your father one and, um, you know, blasting your family all of the time, does it change the way you see other black people? Do you then want to disassociate with those people mm -hmm. because... Changed the way you see white people. It changed, or did it change the way you saw white people? Yeah, it did. Yeah. It did. I, I didn't understand. Did it make you defensive about your um, black friends? There were a lot. Well, first of all, I, I, I kind of thought, well, those guys are just white racist people, and not all white people are racist. Some of them are. All white people are not the, the same, and, and all some black, black people, people are, are racist too. Absolutely. Well, this when is one you, thing I realized realize we're all the for same. The first time, yes, yeah. And so, so I didn't, I didn't necessarily. I had thicker skin, you know, than that. And so, so you didn't change. I don't think change I changed because what happened was when I would go home, I lived in a neighborhood that was that was a um, integrated neighborhood, mm -hmm. and and it was. I'm not saying it wasn't noticeable to me. I knew my friends were black, <laughs> and that I was white, but it never occurred to me that oh, I live in a black neighborhood, or I just lived in a neighborhood. It with wasn't my friends. an issue for you. It wasn't an issue, and my house was always open. And we played basketball in the yard. We played football on the street, and we had a great time together. It wasn't until later in my life that some of my white friends told me that I didn't come to your house because you lived in a black neighborhood. And I thought, I didn't live in a black neighborhood. I lived in, I lived in a really wonderful mixed neighborhood. But their definition, this goes to the one drop. You got one yeah. drop, you black. Yeah. Their definition I said, is... I, their definition was different from mine, and it never occurred to that never. Uh, the fact that you. there are black people in the neighborhood meant... The fact that there's one neighbor. black person in the neighborhood means you live in a black neighborhood. And I tell the story about the school that I went to when I was in, I went to St. Matthias Parochial School. And when I got to second grade, m my friend, Margaret, who was, I thought my girlfriend in second grade never showed up. And I'm like, Where, where's Margaret? And I'm like, well, her family moved because you see Keith, the little black boy, came to school here and her daddy would not let her go to school with a black person. So I was like, well, that was my first introduction. I was like, well, wait, I lost, I don't understand what you just lost happened. your friend because and that person happened to be one of my father's best friends He didn't want to so talk tell to me him about the it. time you were playing. I, I think you were in I yeah, think you were in college. I was, I was in college and it's the first time a black person I, said I went to Catholic University Now yeah. remember I grew up in a neighborhood. I played basketball football Everything and never without African-American friends and so we were always in scuffles 
argue and fight just like kids do. There was no racial anything to the way we played football on the street in New Orleans. Never once had a racial altercation about that. I went to Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and I, was, um, I stayed. I didn't go to a spring break one year because I was writing my senior thesis. And I was in the gym. We were playing basketball, two on two. And it just turned out that it was two black kids versus two white kids. <laughs> and I was one of the white kids. And I got into an argument with this kid. We were going up for a, a goal, and, and I pushed him, or he pushed me. I got elbowed, he elbowed me, and I was on the ground. Mm -hmm. And he stood over me and in an angry, really vicious tone said, you're a blonde-haired, blue-eyed devil. A really racial thing about being white. And, I, and it, it startled me. It was also the way he looked at you, too. It was, he looked, well, he looked at me like he hated me. Yeah. And because I, and it's a, because I was white. Yeah. And I mean, it was clearly that was what he was saying to me. And I, it, sh it shook me. That's the first time anybody African-American treated me that way. And it was a very strange, it's the first time I remember thinking, wow, you know, black people are challenged too about race. And that just kind of stuck in my mind. So the way this is all adding up now, and it's written in the book, it's all of these experiences. The time that I went to Auschwitz and sat there oh, yeah. for a minute and thought about, oh my God, human beings can do awful things to each other when white people think, you know, some people think they're superior to others because but of racial religion. for you, just like for me, and I think for anybody that goes to Auschwitz, you come out of it more determined to fight for justice in your own way than ever before. Well, it did you that to me. You can't go there. You it, can't go it, there It, it did that to me. When you're, when you're there, yeah. and because you were there, you know this, and you see I was there with the prosthetics. Oh, my God. I went with Elie Wiesel. So, so, so you, all of a sudden, you're there, and the suitcases are there, and the prosthetics, and the dentures, and the glasses, and the suitcases, and you think, how in the world, how in the world yeah. did and we ever let that happen? Yeah. And, and I thought, and I write about this a little bit in the book, I thought about slavery in the United States of America. And then, as later in my life, as you say, why did you do it? Because this sense of denial, it didn't happen, it wasn't that bad, it was about economics, and, 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 in, and in the environment that we're in right now, where we're actually relitigating in this country, mm -hmm. the notion that diversity is a strength, and that out of many we are one, and that we want to go back. That, you see, that's a place where I think, not that every white person in America is thinking this, and there are a lot of people that supported Donald Trump that are not racist, but it is clearly true that the cause of white supremacy has been given new quarter. And I think that we need to speak very forcefully to that conservative, liberal, moderate, whatever it is, this kind of thing that, that kind of rose its ugly head in Charlottesville, and then of course what happened in Charleston, which by the way was the moment that I decided to pull the trigger. When Charleston happened, after I had been thinking about this now for a year and a year and a half or so, when Charleston happened and, and, the nine, and, people were shot and in nine people were killed in that church for praying mm -hmm. by a young man named Dylan Roof who professedly did it for racial reasons. And then Joe Riley, who was a mayor of Charleston, and Nikki Haley, Republican governor, they said, okay, well, let's think about taking down the Confederate flag. I thought to myself specifically, if they, it, now is the moment to deal with this issue because it all came full circle. And those monuments, in my opinion, helped facilitate this sense that it was okay to have these public statements of reverence for this superiority. And I said, that's not who New Orleans is. And you had also made a vow to yourself years ago in Auschwitz that if ever you were confronted with a moment of evil, that that is what you would want to do to uh, be able to stand up that, to it. That came and that back was to that me, moment, That right? came back to me twice. One, when David Duke was elected to the legislature in mm -hmm. 1990, 
and then now today, and then I thought, well, you know, you can't walk away from this. You have to, you have to step into this. And as I have said before, there had been many, many people that have worked through this on whose shoulders I stood to do this. Memorial worked on it. The other Memorial worked on it. Mayor Bartholomew worked on it. There's a group in New Orleans called, called Take Them Down NOLA that worked on it. I mean, this was a massive group effort fighting against a really difficult foe, but it should not have been this hard. It should not have been this hard. And the reason I started the book off about the cranes was mm -hmm. because I, as a very powerful mayor of a city that was rebuilding, had the law on my side, I had the political power on my side, and yet they still tried to terrorize the people who were trying to help us and make this impossible to do, which is really the definition of institutional racism. And that in and of itself is a message for the country about how we move forward. So for the people who are listening to us right now, let's talk about the cranes. Oh, so for those for those few who have not gotten the bestseller in the Shadow of Statues, a white Southerner confronts history. You you indeed talk about calling all over the city, trying to find in, in a city that has been rebuilding itself, as you've said, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of construction workers and sites, and not one person will agree to get. Well, this is where I really feel silly and naive because I I really did think that we were going to take the city through this discussion and once it was decided we were going to get them down because I'm building, right. I mean we're building everything and we're building it fast and there's equipment and there's people, there are mechanisms to actually just, these monuments, they're, they're not that big and they're not hard to take down and it took us like four days totally to take them all down over a longer period of time. So this was not a massive construction project like building a new airport that cost a billion dollars, which we're doing by the way. And I surely thought to myself, once it was decided and I signed the executive order, it was going to come down. But no, they fought us in the law. We had, we had, I think, seven different court cases on the federal, state, and local level. We had 13 judges that decided it. But once the legislative, executive, and judicial branches on the federal, state, and local level was decided in this country, the rule of law is now it's time to execute the law. Well, these guys thought, you know what? Hell no. We're still not going to let them take it down. And they began to engage in what I consider to be domestic terrorism. So that in, in, when you're spending money, you have to kind of put stuff out for bid. So people have to actually put their names in. So I didn't use a lot of names in the book because I was trying to protect a lot of people. But for the first uh, company that came forward that got the bid to take the monuments down, they bombed, they firebombed here, burned a cross, <laughs> or blew up the church in Birmingham firebombed his car in the second decade of the 21st century. And from that moment, nobody would come forward to take these statues down. I literally picked up the phone and called every contractor that I knew of, not only in New Orleans, but in Louisiana and in the entire South, trying to find a crane. Somebody, a, crane a crane. Just a crane. And then a crane. And here, here's the thing. Once the crane, a crane operator and they basically had sent a message to everybody that if you get involved in this, somebody that you know is going to get hurt or you're going to lose business. Eventually, we found a number of businesses, some outside, some in the city, that actually were able to do it after we, we put this huge security blanket around them, which, yeah. of course, you know, had made us do it at night and made people cover up their identities. The guy, they're wearing bulletproof sure vests, helmets. Correct. And I'm sure they were Correct. afraid. They, they, were de they were deathly afraid, and, and rightly so, because the security threats were real, and they were imminent. And the security measures we took, we took at the advice of the highest levels 
of security. And weren't there the reports country. too that people were sending drones in? It to wasn't get a report. They were actually doing that. Sending. They had they had drones that they were flying around the cranes to try to get them to stop. They actually got to one of the cranes early on and filled up the gas tank with sand. I mean, they were sabotaging what was a what was a, a legally government sanctioned you know, process now. Now, I don't know what else you call that. I call that domestic terrorism. <laughs> and so eventually what we had to do Were was do- Were you afraid for your life or your um, families? I, I don't want to, there were, there were imminent threats that if precautions would not have been taken, it would cause you to be afraid. But we did everything that you were supposed to do in those circumstances. And so I'm not trying to be cavalier about this, but my entire life, there have been innumerable death threats and you take the appropriate kinds of precautions. And yeah, what I was more concerned about was the people who were not me that were working in this entire process that were feeling very threatened. The, the, the two um, wonderful women that work at my front desk had to receive lots of really awful phone calls that we kept, kept records of that were just, you know, just, just uh, nasty just, and mean. You couldn't even imagine. Hateful, you don't want to listen to that kind of stuff. And, and so, Look, we worked through it the way we were supposed to. Nobody got hurt. But, and I think that when we saw months later what happened in Charlottesville, I think the precautions that we took in New Orleans, it became pretty clear to people that there really were imminent threats and that people can really get hurt. And of course, you know, in the South, we have open carry. So there were people who were on the cause that were bringing, you know, assault rifles and there. And they were in open. And so the police did a really good job of making sure that the individuals who were part of taking down NOLA that were coming, and then the anti-groups were separated from each other, that they were able to exercise their First Amendment rights, and we were able to protect everybody, and the police chief and all well, of the security forces did a great job. A heightened sense of danger, and also far more money. Oh, it was incredible. Well, yeah, it got to be three or four times the cost. It should have never been that because way. Because look at all the money you've got to spend protecting people. Correct, but generally speaking, you know, when people got upset about that, I said, listen, no matter, you know, New Orleans is a great sports entertainment, cultural place, and right. we have tons of people. And we just got finished French Quarter Fest with thousands of people. We always do what's necessary to protect people's well-being. And so when this turned into, we're not letting you take them down no matter what, we had to affect the law. It was the right thing to do, and we had to do it in a way where people were safe, and it cost a lot of money. And we had to get people to donate to it, and they would only donate if I kept their donations confidential, which I have done to this day, and will continue to do until they allow me to release their name. Was there a sense of relief once they were all down, that last one? Yeah, mm -hmm. I felt a great sense of relief and pride. There are very few times in your life, certainly in public life, that you get to course correct history, that you get to right or wrong, or you get to make straight what was crooked. And, and this really essentially was what we did. And it's one of the reasons why I actually wrote the speech, because I wanted there to be in writing Mm -hmm. a historical record of what had happened back then, mm -hmm. why we did what we did, what the reasons were for it, and then the, then the public argument in favor of it. And essentially, it, it is a very uniquely American story, which is that out of many, we are one, and everybody's included. And we all come to the table of democracy as equals. That's, that's really who we are. And I couldn't think of a better way for the people of New Orleans to say thank you to the people of America for helping us come out of Katrina than to send that message very loudly and clearly. What you were ultimately trying to do is what I think the, the Picayune's a writer talked about, no justice, no peace. You were trying to bring about a sense of justice so Correct. that there could be a leveling of the peace. Well, and, and another way for people, you know, that's an interesting thing because when I was a kid and I heard, you know, I grew up in, the, in adoring Dr. King. 
but also being aware of the of the historical fight that that the people who believed in nonviolent protest were with people that said by any means necessary and the mm -hmm. anti-historical Malcolm X Dr. King theory of how you bring about social change. And when I was a kid, no justice, no peace, the way it rang in my ear was wrong, which was like, if you don't give me what's mine, we're gonna get in a fight and I'm gonna take it from you. What I, what I have come to think more about is that no justice, no peace is a statement of fact, mm -hmm. which goes something like this. If there is no justice, if I don't feel like I'm being fairly treated, if I'm not given the same opportunity, if I don't, and not afforded the same responsibility, if I don't have the same kind of hope, I feel alienated from you. And when we're alienated, we can't be together, and there can be no sense of peace, there can be no sense of harmony, there can be really no sense of communion where you and I create something together that's better than what we could give to each other individually. That's really, in my mind now, I think that's what that means. And so it's kind of like the difference between reverence and remembrance. They look a lot the same, but they're very different. So if we can find a higher place, if we can find a better place, we're going to be better when we're together. And so that's why that, that, that part of the speech was written, to invite people, to invite people. I want to gently peel your hands from a false narrative of history that has been holding us back. It's an invitation to, to, to reconcile and to be better if we could get to that place. And that's why I thought it was important. Was this the, one of the hardest decisions you ever had to make? <laughs> Well, you know, I've been in public office for 30 years, so yeah. there have been a lot of them. Yeah. Um, this was certainly one of the most difficult to get through. Yeah. Although, I have to say that rebuilding a city that has been completely destroyed and completely rebuilding a healthcare system and an education system and physically an entire city and given a group of people who had been beaten down badly by history, by Katrina, by Rita, by Ike, by Gustav, by the National Recession, by the BP oil spill, I mean, that was a monumental task. This one was a really important one. It was a critical one because it, it, I think it helped, I think it helped heal a wound that had been making us less than we were. And I think now the city of New Orleans has a chance to look forward to the next 300 years in a way that she didn't have in the last 300. Do you think it helped define you as a man? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I think, I think you know, a lot of times, and this is what I really think courage is, people think it's this bravado thing that we see now about I'm bigger than you and I'm stronger than you. Actually, that's really not what it is. It's it's Because um, I get afraid a lot. And I tell people, you know, one of the ways that it helps me is I write down, I'm really afraid, dot, 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 because. And then I just let it sit there. And the next day I come back and because if I do this then, and I write that down, and you keep writing it down and you keep looking at it, and sometimes you go, Ooh, that's something I really ought to be afraid of. And then the rest of the, I, I don't need to be afraid of those because the consequences are not bad. Once you confront it and you go, but yeah, you know what? I think that's You can't good. walk away. That. You can't walk away from that. I, I, I couldn't. You had to be really afraid that somebody would get hurt during I, all of this. I, well, I was, I, first of all, I, I, I would do everything I could to make sure nobody got hurt. Yeah. But most of the time, what you find out is the things that you're afraid of you need to be able to to kind of stand up against and say that you know what you guys are doing are not right and in this thing I did I did come to this conclusion that I think some people might disagree with but I had come to the conclusion that number one what had happened was wrong that it was a historical lie that they should never have been there and they needed to come down and that I had the power and the responsibility to take them down and then here's the next one 
I could not do it because I would really feel bad about myself. And I, I tell this story that I actually had an imaginary conversation with my grandchild who was yet to be, which mirrors the 12 year old girl's conversation. If I had to talk to my grandchild and they said to me, Papa, you were the mayor, you had the power, you had the responsibility, you had the authority, why didn't you do it? I couldn't answer that question either. And so I just concluded to myself that, you know what, this is kind of just the way it falls. And this is your deal, you gotta, you gotta handle it because nobody else can do it. And even if they could, it's in front of you now and you cannot walk away from it. And so I, I, I felt like I had to do it. I mean, that's, it was just kind of that simple. After all that complexity, it got down to be kind of, you've had this happen to you in your life, you know this. It just gets to be real clear. There's a moment when you go, oh, well, okay, that's just the thing. And the consequences are what they're going to be. And so the taking down of the statues became a symbol for something deeper, greater, more powerful. I just think it was really important. There are people who threaten me. You know, people, people besides the physical threats, but people threaten me politically. You lost a lot of white support. I lost, I lost two-thirds of my white support. That's what I heard. Yeah. So the beautiful thing, here's what's really wonderful. When I got elected, both times, but the, the first time, I got 66% of the votes in the city, which was pretty good. But what was, really, but what was really good about it is that my votes were equally white and equally black. And that's never happened before. Usually politicians put together coalitions of one oh. sort or another. After I took the monuments down, two-thirds of the whites in the city, although my city's still pretty progressive, basically said, I'm not for you anymore. Now, the reason that really ticks me off is because I get that I make decisions all the time that people don't agree with. But this is the first one that I've made where people said, that issue will cause me not to vote for you again. Because, you know, we just, we make decisions and they're right. all hard and we can't ever agree with everybody. I was honest, I worked hard, I ran a competent government, we turned the city around, we did a lot of great stuff. But I've never had an issue where people severed their relationships with me because of it. Now to me that says more about them than it says about me. That means that those individuals, I think, have further to go on this issue, which is why I keep saying you've gotta beat this issue down. And when when John, you walk through town, do some of the white people treat you differently? Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. no question. Furious, They're furious. with me. Well, people outside, white people outside of New Orleans particularly, but this is interesting because people that don't live in the city anymore think that they still run the city. <laughs> and while we love having them there, yeah. and they're welcome in the city all the time, generally the rule is that if you don't own it, you don't have really much to say about it. Mm -hmm. Like if it's not your property or your government. And, and so that was been interesting to get through. I will have to say though that since it's been over and the book has been out and a lot of people have read the book, I have had a lot of white people come up to me and say, you know what? I didn't see it that way. I before. didn't see it that way before, and now I love I do. that, don't you? I love it when that happens. <laughs> well, I it's a beautiful it. thing. But I also yes. have some people say, "You ruined the city," and I'll never vote for you again. I said, "That's great." So I'm never running for anything again. So we're good to go. Yeah, never running for anything again. Okay. It's um, a nice space that you you feel free that way. What are you gonna do, 21 days from now? You wake up after 30 I'm gonna, years. I'm going to rest. You're going to rest. I really, you know, it's a, it's a, because people ask days this, from like, now it's done. It's, it's really weird. I'm starting to, you can feel the end of something coming. And I, and I, when you've been doing something for 30 years and you take it for granted, all could of a sudden. It could be the beginning of something it, else. It could be. You never know. You never know. But, but, but when you've been in office for 30 years mm -hmm. and you stop, I really, this is going to sound weird, but I, I need time 
to rest and to think and to pray and to just get away from what I've been in so that I can see it more clearly. And because you get, there's a lot of this when you're in office, mm -hmm. a lot of people on you, who likes you, when who you doesn't like schedule you, schedule every day, yeah. you're running from thing to thing, you don't have time to really are you really prepared for that? Are you prepared? I, I hope Are you so. prepared? I think I am. Are you? Okay. I think, well, uh, let me say this. I think it's going to be hard, but, but I'm very interested and anxious to separate myself. That's interesting. I, wanna, I, wa I do really want to get away. I don't really know. I've been blessed in my life. I have a wife. I have five beautiful kids. I have eight brothers and sisters. I've got 33 nieces and nephews. I have a, I've been re, and, I've, and I've been given the opportunity to do a lot of beautiful things, not the least of which is rebuild a great American city, which has been spectacular. People of New Orleans are drop-dead fantastic in every way. You know this. You've been there. You've worked there. It's a soulful place. If you love them, they're going to love yeah. you forever. It's just a great, great place. But I am, very, I am very interested in trying to find out what it feels like to just really have your feet on the ground and just to be a regular dude. And, and to get distance and to think about what happened. And then I'm not anxious about the future at all. I have no um, concerns or, or worries in the sense that like everything's, not, you know, it's not gonna be okay, it's gonna be fine. I don't know what it's gonna look like though, but I am, a, I am very open to doing something completely different than what I've been doing for the past 30 years. And I'm really kind of interested to see how that develops in my, in my willingness to receive whatever And comes. if it is politics, because I've been asked this question, that's why I'm, I'm being tentative about asking you. You can ask uh, me, I'll answer. About, about, about running for president. Are you, would you consider it? Would you be open to the possibility that that might well, be? Well, here's, here's, here's the political game that everybody plays, because there, there are 50 different iterations. Are you running for president? Yeah. No. Does that mean you're never running for president? It, it, like, you go, yes. well, how would you? How would you know? So first of all, let me just be completely authentic about this. You don't, you, you don't serve in politics and not get prideful when somebody says, you know, you could be a good president. You could be good. Oh, you know, I mean, every human being, it's like saying, you know, we start playing tennis. Well, you could be Roger Federer. Really? You know, so I, I, hear, I mean, I hear that, right? I've been there 30 years. And it feels years. like what when it, you hear it just, that? It just feels, it, it makes you proud that somebody yeah. thinks that you might be the president of the United States. Yeah. That makes you proud. You can't mm -hmm. say that it doesn't. But the, but the next question is get really, really hard. Um, would you ever think about it? Well, of, of course. I mean, when people are talking about you possibly doing that, yeah, you, it makes you think about it. But then, the, but then it gets really hard. It's like, well, would you do it? Now that's a really hard question, because the truth of the matter is I don't, I don't, I'm not really planning to do that. Now politicians all the time say, oh, "Well, I'm not planning to do it," but they really are. Yeah. I'm really not. Okay, but all what right. would make you do it? What would cause you to do it? Is there I, something that could cause you to do I'm, it? I'm sure that there is. I've always had a sense of, um, a sense of always wanting to be in a place where you use whatever gifts or talents you have to help other people. I will say this though, and I have a very strong feeling about this. It's, that's not the only place where you can do that. Absolutely. You, you, are, you are the perfect example of Absolutely. that. And sometimes people can get deluded into thinking that that's the only place yeah. where that can be done. Now you know President Obama. There are lots of different ways to touch people. You know people. President Bush, you know all yeah. of these people. You know that in a very personal way that that job is an incredible sacrifice. 
it's a life-ending sacrifice in some ways, Absolutely. not physically, but spiritually, and, and in a way that, like, once you do that, there's really nothing else you're done. And, and, and so it's not an easy sacrifice to make. And plus, it, it takes a lot of hubris and arrogance to think that you're the only person that can do that, and there are a lot of other people that can. Um, I happen to think that the country's in a really bad place right now. I don't think that what's happening on the federal level is really what we need to be doing, and I think the country is in a space that we have to get out of. And it's an interesting thing for us to think about as a people. That's not just a political question. It's What's a really, the worst about where we are right now? When you wake up and you think about... We're fighting with each other over a bunch of silliness. Like, I, I, don't, I think we're relitigating issues that should be closed. Like, is diversity a strength or a weakness? We're, we, are, we, are a, we are a multicultural country. That's who mm -hmm. we are. And the fact of the matter is that in 2040, we're going to be more multicultural as we are now. So why are we resisting what we know What's is coming. coming to be it's coming. and not making it better and making it worse. We're actually going backwards right now on this issue. And I think everybody in this country has to be seen and everybody has to be heard. And this is about race and it's about class. And I think that we have to learn that as a matter of fact, as a matter of economic sense, as a matter of national security, in every way, the United States of America is better today than in many ways it has ever been. So why are we so afraid of each other? Why are we fighting each other so much? Why are we actually, just by, by forced error, our own forced error, moving backwards rather than forward? Everybody knew this. When Barack Obama got elected, this entire country, people that voted for him and didn't went, wow, we just did something that we have never done before. And he served very well, and he served admirably. He was a great president. People may not have agreed with everything that he'd done, but there's no doubt that he moved the country forward. Why do we now feel like everybody's got to go back and say, that was a terrible mistake. Let's go ahead and divide this, the country racially again and not think about how we can, you know, be great. And great not just as a government, but great as a people. I don't, I don't really understand that right now. And yeah. I don't think the country really has a good feeling at the moment that we know the answer to that question. Have we, we lost our moral authority? Well, I think we're working at it. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think that we as a country are working at it. But my sense is that long term, even though I wouldn't take this for granted, because I think you have to fight for freedom. I think freedom doesn't, doesn't come on its own. You've got to fight for it every day. And you've got to fight for what your idea of America is. And that fight goes on every, every day with mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and aunts but if and we're not, if you don't cousins, believe that we're stronger as one, then you don't believe in the I, United States. I, I agree. That's what mm -hmm. I think. And mm -hmm. I, think that that, I think that that idea, that idea is worth fighting for. But I don't think, to answer your question more directly, that the only way that you can do that is to be in government. And I think that there are lots of different ways. For example, when Disney did Black Panther. Yeah. Transformational movie. Now, you've been doing this your entire life, a transformational movie, back to the little 12-year-old girl. When she goes and watches Black Panther, now does she feel open and invited and powerful? And does she feel like, oh my goodness, now I can be great? The answer is yeah. You go watch that movie, that movie is yeah. so spectacular. So artists, writers, poets, playwrights, musicians, social activists, they can all change the world. And You've seen presidents and their post-presidents, Jimmy Carter being one of them, who would admittedly himself say that I was much better not being in office than not. And so the, the, what I want Americans to really kind of get keyed in on is that when 300 million people decide 
that they want to do something. When each of them does something on their own, the country can move forward and it doesn't have anything to do with politics. And that is a very interesting concept to me. And so as I think about what the next iteration is going to be in my life, you know, I don't want to get stuck in this thing that I've been stuck in without having really, really, really thought about it. And, you know, the sense of helping other people do it is more important to me than me being the guy. That's not saying that you never say never because you don't ever know where God wants you to be and you don't close off those possibilities, but it's not something that really is at the forefront of my mind at the moment. I hear that answer and I trust that it's true. I can feel that that's true. Well, that does not sound things like... Things change. Who the yeah, heck knows? Yeah, but who I don't the heck know. Knows. I want to end this conversation with the words from your son that struck me so. Yeah, uh, at the end of the book, In the Shadow of Statues, a white southerner confronts history. Um, you came across your son's essay, right? Mm. That he was writing for college. Uh, and he says this, his name is Will Landrieu. Will, you get the last word. Mm. Growing up as the son of the mayor of New Orleans, I've seen the struggles of leadership. In response to years of discussion, my father decided to remove the Confederate monuments found across our city. He delivered a speech on the topic that though nationally was applauded, was locally controversial. There was discord in the city leading to tense protests that bordered on violence. Despite 30 years of earning the public's approval, the vitriol thrust through my father's professional life directly to the daily lives of our family. We didn't feel safe anywhere or with anyone. For the two days after the removal, I walked down the school hallway, bracing myself as my classmates yelled out, nigger lover, and your dad is ruining the city. My closest friends even sent me articles with false rumors about my father. Until now, I have kept these words to myself. Standing up for others is excruciatingly lonely. I know my dad must be more hurt and lonely than I am. As my black friends explain, at least my family is lonely by choice. They were simply born just a little bit darker than I was. Until the monuments were removed, my friends never imagined they would live a day where they wouldn't walk the hallways or sit in history class in fear of the next hateful comment. I know the decision is right because my friends would want someone to stand up for them. I have the ability to do that. So I intend to take full advantage of my privilege. I know that great decisions have great costs, but those costs are a fraction of what the people we are making them for have endured. Thank you, Will Landrieu. Thank you, Mitch Landrieu. Thank you. In the shadow of statues. Thank you. It's Thank great you. being with you. Great being with you. Hey there, podcast listeners. I have exciting news. We're launching a brand new podcast. In addition to Super Soul Conversations, it's called Oprah's Masterclass. The Masterclass podcast allows you to hear the greatest life lessons from some of the most respected and renowned actors, musicians, public figures, and athletes in their own words. Listen as Jay-Z, Justin Timberlake, Ellen DeGeneres, Shaquille O'Neal, Reba McIntyre, Dwayne Johnson, and Jane Fonda, just to name a few, share what they've learned about life and their own insights into their personal stories and challenges. I believe that there's something to be learned from every experience and everyone can use their life as a class. 
Oprah's Masterclass podcast will be available July 19th on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe now and listen free. Go to applepodcast.com slash Oprah's Masterclass. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening.